Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 218. Uh, I had a chat with Paul McLeany. Now, you may remember, if you've been listening to this for a long time, he has been a guest before. Uh, He was one of the first conversations I recorded, although I didn't run it until a year or so into the life of the podcast. Uh, So it's long overdue a catch-up, and as it turns out, Paul, who's recorded under his own name and the impending adorations, and he's been a member of the SJD band and worked with all sorts of people in New Zealand music, including behind the scenes and working in publishing, um, he's returned to the name that I guess first launched him in in New Zealand and around the world, Gramsci. That is the name of the band that he first released albums under, and he is, as you're listening to this, uh, a day away from releasing Inheritance, the brand new Gramsci album, the first in 15 years. Uh, It is an amazing album. As you're listening to this, uh, do a search, find it, have a listen to it, find the tracks online. Um, I was blown away by this record. I loved it. So I I, I was going to talk to Paul anyway. I mean, frankly, I probably would have talked to him even if I didn't like it, but I was lucky to hear the album and form my opinion around it before we had this chat. Now, this is a phone conversation. Uh, I recorded this uh, down the phone, and I know that I said I wasn't going to do Zoom conversations and too many phone conversations. There have been a few phoners in the life of this podcast, But with this, obviously he's in Auckland, he has a new album that's just coming out. Uh, I wanted to, the offer was there to do the conversation, I wanted to do it and record it. And it's come out pretty well uh, in terms of you being able to listen to it just alongside the uh, regular face-to-face podcasts. So not a a move that's going to happen all the time, but uh, if if you're okay with this, um, I might do a few more of these. Uh, It'll be an easier way to get to people since uh, we're all finding it a little bit trickier to get around the places we want to go in this new world. Uh, Paul and I, so therefore we talked about the new album. We didn't talk about his other music really because we've covered that and we also talked about changes in life Um, there's a huge backstory to this album for him personally and I won't uh, preface that because you'll hear that in the conversation Um, finally we talk at the end about the passing of Aaron Tokina. We were actually going to talk about that at the very start of this conversation, but Paul blindsided me with his enthusiasm for David Gilmore and Pink Floyd, and that was like, you know, a little tickle under the chin to me. I just couldn't resist, and so we just jumped straight in on that. Um, so we talked about Aaron Tokina, who we both knew, uh, who who died last week, as you're hearing this. Uh, a very sad... Um, story very sad passing there of of a great New Zealand musician who had a lot of love for music gave a lot of love through his music and was admired by many and collaborated with many so we just shared a couple of stories about him it seemed like the right time to be able to do that I never got to talk to Aaron for the podcast um, I uh, wrote some words about him which I'll share in the notes to this he uh, he took a photo of us at a, at a gig one day and said you know I want to have a photo with you and then he sent me a message when he sent me the photo and said we need to hook up for a chat on your podcast soon bro because it had just started and I said yeah absolutely and then it fell away and though I knew Aaron to talk to and I interviewed him a couple of times for a couple of albums he was involved in we never got to sit down and have a chat for the podcast I would have liked that Um, my condolences and sympathies and thoughts are with his family and friends this is episode 218 of Sweetman Podcast my chat with Paul McClaney how's sobriety? 
I've had a few epiphanies. The interest—it's it's interesting because um, my year. I mean, I stopped New Year's Eve, 2019, and in the um, and my uh, my New Year's resolution was a year off. Mm. See what it was like, and then um, so as we got into 2020, I've sort of been looking at what you know how I. If, if it's something I want to do, or you know, I've given myself permission to do it, but um, I'm not quite sure. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a str- once you've sort of taken the foot off the gas, it's you sort of real, you sort of wonder why you had your foot in the gas in the first place. Do you know, I was when I read your notes about uh, about that that particular epiphany. I was looking forward to talking to you because uh, I'm in a similar space myself. I gave up drinking in February of this year with no real. Um, intention to do it beyond having a, a break, like I didn't put a timeline on it. Um, yeah. And then obviously the world changed with the lockdown, and I'd had enough uh, not drinking to be very comfortable in that space. So I was quite happy. I feel like if it was a week or two, I might then have just got back into it. But because it was a month or two, I was fine. And um, oh. yeah, I, I don't know if I'll go back to it. Good on you, man. I think it's you know because you grow up in a culture of it. You know, you know. I'm you know my my heritage is is you know northeastern English working class. You know, mm, my, mm. and the rest of my grandparents were all Glaswegian and you know bartenders and barmaids and all that sort of stuff. And so you got like you know millennia <laughs> of, um, of, uh, of 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 drinking genes floating through your body and and that sort of sensation that it that it is the um, you know, it's yeah. best and you've, celebration and, and, and the camaraderie. And you, uh, my Sunday afternoons and Saturday afternoons as a kid were always going to the pub with the family, and you know, and you'd meet all the other kids who yeah. were at the pub with the family, and you and you learn how to play pool, and you know, and and people tell stories, and your parents get a bit more relaxed, and it's all and and, and there's something you know, and you know, being into you know, rock and roll and whatever you want to call it, you know, the the the, the romance of of all that and then obviously poetry and writers and but you know I don't think any of those guys or gals did anything particularly amazing on uh, on on alcohol might does some pretty good stuff on other drugs yeah but on that. <laughs> and then you moved to provincial New Zealand and got hit by New Zealand binge drinking culture as well so it's double whammy for you well yeah exactly you know mm. and then Napier and then you mm. know Hawke's Bay and, and you know the Scarfy drinking culture which is another you know yeah, when yeah. I was a student it was $5 a jug and you know, giving it away mm-hmm. but no so it's just really interesting because I, I may go back and have a drink at some point but I'm really like like you summarised I, I sort of wonder why my foot was on the gas or or the gas was in my glass I just don't really feel like I need it and and you feel better for it and it's hard not to sound too um, born again and sermonising about it, but I, 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 I'm well, trying to be relaxed around other drinkers. I don't give a shit who drinks. I'm just quite enjoying not doing it myself. No, no, no you know, and, and it's once you get past that conversation because, you know, I, I um, in that year off, I, I made a real uh, point of not, of, of almost trying to be like the last man standing, like, you know, the Silver Scrolls and all that sort of stuff. I would go out and I'd be in that bar till like four a.m. <laughs> right, right, yeah, okay. And, and the comments, you know, and you get pulled across by Steve Abel or Sean Donnelly or something, and they're, oh, yeah, Bob Dylan, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, 
I think knocked out loaded is a great album. And he's like, okay, I've had this conversation. Actually, my biggest epiphany about that was um, I always thought that drunk people told you the same story lots because they didn't remember that they told you the story. But the actual epiphany is that you didn't respond strongly enough to their amazing pieces of information. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do until you know- they tell you again until they get the reaction that they, oh, oh, you've realised how amazing that story was. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know it's interesting um, that you mentioned Bob Dylan because, and this is sad, and I wouldn't tell anyone else this. I think first off, but uh, you will get it. I my first um, kind of feeling of ah. Oh, Maybe I will drink again. Was wanting to get drunk with the new Bob Dylan album. Like it came yeah, out no, last week. <laughs> it came out last week, and I listened to it, and I loved it. And I knew I got a, I, you know, I knew straight away. Oh, there's a whole lot of listening in this. And I just had this moment that I was like, not just have a drink, but I wanted to get drunk with that album. I wanted to sort of go and get a bottle of whiskey and spend an evening consuming both. And uh, well, no, it's funny you say because you know, like people, oh, you know, Pink Floyd, you know, you smoke pot, and you <laughs> yeah, Floyd. Like, you, know, you, you drink whiskey and you listen to um, Bob Dylan, you know, the success of that new album, it, it's that that's like a you know, that's not that whole romance of, of, of alcohol, isn't it? You know, you know, the whiskey is, a, is mm. a sort of a street court philosopher drink, and you know, and cheap red wine is you know, because there's that you know, don't know fact, um, documentary on, yeah, yeah. That pops up, and you know, and he says to his manager, "Get me some bottles of cheap red wine." That's really that was his drink. You know, he didn't want you know, and 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 the idea that you know you sit there and, but I mean, I just had a re- we've we've been rehearsing for the for the band at like a, like ten a.m. Mm, mm. You know, and and it's great. You know, you're two o'clock. You've still got the rest of the day, and 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 you've. You, that's the that's the better drug. That's the better sort of thing because you know the whole reward thing about alcohol is is the, is the strangest thing. Once you take your foot off the gas and you have a bit of objectivity on it, then you know it, is it a reward? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, reward? and I think you're the you're probably the same as me in that we we grew up in in the same you know we're this roughly the same age and we grew up doing similar things and in, in similar spaces because we've talked a few times and and we have similar sorts of connections with music and i kind of just i've been explaining it to people like i was really good at drinking i really liked it and i was excellent oh, and i was excellent at it and i know you were and i so i sort of just feel like well i've done that like a, it's almost like clocking a video game like i don't need to keep yeah. doing it i did it and i don't mind if i don't now they're not going to play Street Fighter 2 again, do they? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so that's that's sort of how I've been, you know, because I had to do the, years ago I had to give up smoking and I guess the romantic attachment to smoking for a while was the idea of sitting over a typewriter or a computer keyboard and thinking that that's what serious writers do uh, in both poetry and journalism. But mate, I've been far more prolific since I gave up smoking because I don't have smoke breaks. I don't know. but. <laughs> It's a romance, you know. But you know, and as I say, I'm, 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 I spent the first six months of this year, and it's had the extra um, issue, obviously, of lockdown and, um, mm. and all that sort of stuff. But sort of examining what my, how I feel about it, and you know, and what I've noticed is that the biggest impetus to to, to have a drink really is um, for the you know, like, you know, like your brother-in-law or or the family comes over and they want to have like a Sunday afternoon drinking thing and, and you feel like you're sort of bumming them out or mm. <laughs> yeah yeah or, um, and it's, it's it's in service to other people's um 
you know, but once you, you know, once you, I, I have a fridge full of kombucha and um, sparkling water, you know, and sparkling water is my day-to-day drink. And then, you know, if I, when I sit down and watch a Netflix or something, I'll crack out the switch or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm I'm still learning this stuff because, yeah, I mean, my most of my really good friends, lifelong friends that I went to school with that I'm still mates with, we all live in different cities. So I haven't actually crossed that bridge yet about a big catch up with, you know, people that I did used to get drunk with or, or just go and have a beer with. Mm. But when I went home to my folks' place recently for their wedding anniversary, my, my mum doesn't drink, she never has. My dad looked quite... Perplexed. I mean, he knew I wasn't drinking. Uh, it wasn't a shock to him in that sense. But as the weekend went on, he just wasn't. He just couldn't get his head around the fact he was so used to me. I think drinking him dry. That you uh, know, my, my 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 dad basically just. Um, I'll see you in a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll have something to talk about and uh, and some way of doing it when you start again. <laughs> well, well, you know, well, it, 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 as I said. Um, my situation now is that I'm allowed to. Yeah. I want to. Like we, yeah. we had a list, we had a listening session at um at the lab and um, you know, I, I had a I had a beer and a glass of wine. You know, in, in um in, in in the in the company of those of those people. But again it was when I when I when I looked at it, it was, I mean and I thought, well that that is a celebration. That isn't just get, like getting through a day and say <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I, I deserve this. It's like I spent a fucking year making this record and and all these things and 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 it's and I've and I've examined um, you know my relationship to alcohol via the inherited blood history of of of, of my of my family through the um, the legacy of artists and people that I, that I adore and and um, and all that sort of stuff and it, now it's like well what's all of that stuff's inherited. All of that stuff is, is it was bequeathed. All of that stuff was um, given or learned. It's like, well, now that it's my choice, what's my relationship with it? What you know? How do I? How does it? Um, where does my choice impact on this situation, rather than um, you know some sort of inherited necessity? Yeah, yeah. And what what have been the um the most obvious health and or mental health um, dividends, bonuses that you've noticed from scaling back altogether and now feeling not particularly tied to it? Uh, personal control. I mean, I, 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 I you would know Craig Terrace. Mm. Um, he was the first person I knew that sort of, um, it was probably about 10, 15 years ago, he stopped drinking. And... Um, he had this. He had this big rant to me one night because you know, we were big drinkers back in the day together and stuff. And he was saying that he felt it was like a big fucking cell, you know, like um, you know, it's like it's, I won't name them, but you know, certain industry bodies who fund music to a certain extent, they put yeah. on these big parties and you know, all these you know showcases or what have you. And there's a free bar, and so all the musicians turn up or whatever and have their photograph taken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it and it and it's like some sort of um, uh, approval by proxy of, of of that sort of situation. Yeah, but of course musicians are going to turn up. You know, they're not making any money, and there's a you know coming to this thing, and you'll get all this free alcohol. And he felt, you know, it, it was it was like some sort of like um, in his mind, it was this sort of uh, you know, you've sort of been bought off. Yeah, through, yeah. Through through, through, through your um, 
cultural weakness. <laughs> yes, it, yes, and it's it's really a um, an illusion that creates a, a a fog of camaraderie because people, you know, people do like that social lubrication thing. That's part of the myth that we've all been taught, right? That you'll you'll go you'll bowl up to that person and say something when you've had a couple and or when you've seen they've had a couple because. You know, I, I still experience that in bars. People come up and go, oh, you know, you wrote that review about my mate's band. Mm. But, you know, they wouldn't do it when you first walk in. They sort of size you up and, yeah. No, that was that, that, in, in, in terms of answering your question. Like, um, I did have that sort of, that's why I threw myself into, like, you know, big social events. And yeah, yeah. I tell everything uh, sober as a judge. Um, because I think one of the, it's definitely a floor of mine that I've been working on for a long time, and it's definitely, and I'm pretty sure it's a floor of most people, is that um, listening is a real skill in social um, engagement. You know, that whole, yes, I'm socially lubricated now, and I can say what I want to say, but you're not, that's because you're just taking your turn to speak. You're not really listening and responding. You just wait until that other person stops talking, and you, and you do your talking bit. And I find that, you know, going into the situation, I would stand there and I would listen to someone and let them finish their entire thought, you know, and then respond or not respond, you know, but but, but perfectly or as perfectly as I could, you know, without sort of just being sort of like, you know, he's an opinion, he's a contrary opinion. Well, you know, trying to get to the root of it, trying to get to the root of a, of, 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 a, of an argument when neither of you can remember what the result will be is a bit pointless anyway. I'm being very careful to leave lots of space as you were talking then. I felt I felt, <laughs> I felt targeted somewhat. Uh, and it's great that that right. happens, right? <laughs> you know, uh, that we become aware of that. Yeah, well, it's, it, 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 you know, you just become aware of um, your facility as part of that social mechanism, you know, people need to be socially lubricated. And what is it you're lubricating? You're lubricating yourself, or are you lubricating the um, the mechanism of thought and conversation, and you know, shared ideologies, or you know, uh, trying to make the world a better place? Or are you just looking for another, you know, uh, plinth to stand on and you know, tell everybody how it really is? Mm, mm. And uh, so you mentioned having more than one epiphany. That was obviously one, and then there's been some connected ones within that, some realisations around how we behave and why we behave the, do, the way we do around drinking culture and, and how it uh, pretends to sustain us. What what have been some of the other um, epiphanies in your life over the well since we last talked and, and, and in the creation of this album? Uh, well, a big one. I suppose is um, I feel like um, you know I got into the guitar or music you know when I was at 12, 13 and, and you know and you, and you become a you know a disciple of, 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 of the greats and you dig down into things that are more niche or lean towards your, your own particular flavour of things you know like Everyone's into the big ones, you know, like, you know, the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and, and Pink Floyd and what have you. But, you know, then you find your own niche ones, like, you know, the, the and uh, for me, you know, Jeff and Solo, things like that, and, or Boards of Canada or, or wherever it is. And um, and then you hit that sort of teenage year, and then, the, you know, fashion starts to get physical taste as well, you know. And, well, you know, it's cool to like the Cure and the Smiths, but I won't tell anybody about these other guilty pleasures that I have. 
You know, I can't say that I fucking love the first three minutes of a new world record by ELO or or, or whatever it is. You know, mm. you think you dodge and you know and and, and the, the currency of your cool and you know and, you, and when I got to like university, it was you know with the orientation year of like the Lemonheads and you know Chris Hirsch and throwing muses and you know everyone's really into belt space and this that, and the other and and um, by the time I actually got to be a recording artist, you know things. Something as basic, something like a guitar solo, you know, was sort of off the, um, <laughs> was off the menu. Yeah, yeah. Menu, you know, it had been off the menu for like the majority of my recording career. But the reality is, I grew up listening, you know, the, the, the piece of music that made me want to be a musician in the first place was when I was like eight years old and I heard the outro guitar solo on Tunnel of Love by um, Die Straits. You know, to this day, I can't listen to that without tearing up. I just, something about his sort of uh, poetry about, Putting New York Rockaway on top of Whitley Bay, you yeah, know, um, yeah, and the poetry of that, and then you know, there's a there's a choreographer called Agnes DeMille, and she did the um, the ballet sequence in Oklahoma, and she had this theory like in in musicals that you you talk until you can't talk, and then you sing. That's the theory in musicals, you know, the, right? Yeah, expression. yeah. And then she her theory is that once you can't sing, you should dance. And within a lot of the great pieces of music that have really affected me emotionally, um, I would say that the guitar solo is that point where the, the solo transcends the lyric. You know, it goes beyond. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Comfortably Numb is, is, is the obvious one for me because, you know, there's such a an emotional pathos of dislocation in that lyric. You know, that's really what it's about. It's about shutting down and, you know, I just wanted to be, just throw yourself down into some beautiful nostalgic memory and live there and not have the world affect you but then the solo the second solo and actually the first, the first solo is beautiful but the second solo is that just like that's like the sound of self-actualization you know all that reserved Englishness you know you, you see Dave Gilmore talk and he's and he's very English and proper and yes. you know he's not getting all huggy feelings or talking about you know his chakras or anything but when you hear him play that solo it's like he just transcends whatever emotional baggage he's got to just completely express and it and I imagine like you know like like a ten year old Dave Gilmore sitting there listening to Link Ray or Hank Marvin or wherever he was into. And the sound of that solo to me is like the sound of self actualization. And I remember that when I first really listened to it and it was at it was like lunchtime at Pongray Boss High and um I had my walkman on and there was a full set of batteries so it was the right key. <laughs> hadn't, you know, dropped down two octaves by it. <laughs> and, um, and I was walking across the quad. It was like a, well, the quad was like a, more like an octagon, really. And I was walking across, and I stopped in the middle when that second solo hit, and all these boys are running, you know, about 1,500 kids are running in every direction going to their classes. And I, and I always sort of imagined like a drone shot, and I was standing there, and that solo hit, and I just saw it, like tears running down my face. I must have been like 15, 16. And to me, it was just recognizing that sound of self-actualization and that, that that you could perhaps get there. You know, people talk yeah. about music being like this universal language and it's not, you know, a different, has no alphabet and it's just expression and, and within classical music and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, and people talk about the violin being the closest to the human voice, but nobody bends two and a half tones <laughs> on a violin. Like, yeah. That, that really isn't... Um, that form of expression... This really um, lives in in the space of the electric guitar with its with its facilities to su to sustain, 
and um, and the way that you attack it and the way you play it. And so it, it occurred to me that um, I was going to explore the, the you know the topics that we're talking about in terms of addiction and, and alcohol and, and all that sort of stuff. And that that as didactic or as um, narrative as I could be lyrically, the real expression that I've been afforded is one that I've never really, in terms of expressing that particular emotion, has never not one that I've really um, explored in, in the recorded medium before, mm. which is guitar solos, and it's and it's and it's it's bizarre to me, like like some sort of taste police have have have, have um <laughs> and I have you know in you know there's like thought police really because I've sort of invented them I suppose you know I don't think anyone that's spin off really cares if I play guitar solo or not, but you know in my mind they did. You know, or you know, people sitting sipping, uh, you know, lattes on on Vulcan Lane or whatever. Um, that the, I grew up <laughs> listening to those people play. You know, yeah, Eric and, and Cream. You know, or that sort of thing. And Peter Green. You know, Peter Green was a huge hero, and still is a huge hero of mine. In, in things like Jumping at Shadows, and and actually, I've been getting really into really Danny Kerwin, really exploring his. A lot of things I thought were Peter Green are actually Danny Cohen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, you know, and, and that, that 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 lightness of touch, that and that particular sort of working class English approach to blues. And, and, and if you have do any sort of study, I don't know that you have, and you'll and you um, you'll you'll totally have done this. But um, when you look into the lives, you know, there's that Twelve Bars documentary on yes, Clapton, and yeah. it's fucking devastating. You know, his whole relationship with his mother, and and obviously, you know, Peter Green's sort of Jewish upbringing in East End. London and you know um, and um, the, obviously blues is a black, black American form but so many um, people have found a, a point of expression within that um, yeah yeah well that, playing. that whole English not British blues boom and extended uh, English scene you know things like the Beatles and the Who and stuff that whole art school era it's kids that came from broken families or lost a parent or certainly had no love from a parent because of um, hardship in the parent's life and that whole kind of grinning and bearing it and stiff upper lip and gritting and getting through and then finding their creativity at art school and finding this form as an escapist thing, basically, you know, this Mm. whole other world of music that came from another shore. And yeah, so yeah, there's always going to be blues purists that tell you it ain't blues if it ain't muddy waters or whatever. But yeah, I mean, we've, you and I have talked about this before. I'm a big fan of a lot of that stuff. And, and, and for, for a lot of people of a certain age, our age and older, uh, that was the key to finding out about, you know, going back and then finding those records that our heroes grew up on, you know, finding those actual blues records as a result of listening to Clapton and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and but so I was on. Talking, I was talking to Jeff Boyle about this and he was saying, because um, when I was making this record, I was, you know, because I hadn't done the whole guitar solo thing, obviously I've always played that way, but I never you know, put it on record. And and I, I really, um, he's for me, he's got like, you know, exceptional taste. And I, if, if he told me that was off yeah. limits, then I, I would listen to it. <laughs> And he, was, and he was saying, you know, like um, all of those guys that you're talking about, you know, your Jeff Becks and your Martin Offlers and your Dave Gilmore's and Richard Thompson and whoever it is, you know, the thing that's really particular about their guitar playing, as opposed to, say, your Satriani's and your Pliny's and your mm. Vi's, you know, and that's all full credit to, you know, that, that stuff. I, I enjoy listening to it, but, you know, 
it gets tiresome after a while. But he said the thing about a lot of guys you're talking about is that there's a there's a there's a there's a strong aspect and display of storytelling in the way that they play. You know, those those solos they take you somewhere. They, yeah, it's not just a whole bunch of like check me out on my technique. Yeah, yeah, you know, they're, they're lyrical you know, and they're poetic. Yeah, yeah, no, you know, I mean that whole opening section of Shine On Your Crazy Diamond. You know, it's it's like blues in space. It's you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 yeah, it's scene setting. And I, I wanted to go back to what you were saying about um, Tunnel of Love and 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 a lot of uh, Dire Straits stuff from that era. But obviously, that's the classic example of if a song was trying to take the place of a movie or capture what a short film might do in the version of a song, it's Tunnel of Love, isn't it? And that mm. and that outro guitar solo is like some final lingering tracking shot or something you know like it's it's totally crafted and created to to fit that song he tells you what he's about to feel and then he then he illustrates it by playing the guitar yeah. and not by you know it's just like yeah again it's like some beautiful horizon shot or yeah driving away from the beach or whatever it is you know yeah also to go back to your um to go back to your comfortably numb story i mean that could almost be an outtake from the war movie if they shifted the scenes around. <laughs> you listening to that at school and everyone disappearing. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know that, that's the thing I always liked about um, the the aesthetics of the way that when Roger Waters was there, you know, um, the real domesticity with Storm Thorgerson and and yep. and, um, and uh, Hypnogus, Hypnogus, I didn't say it. Um, you know that. With all the Floyd stuff, apart from the animations, it was never anything that was filmed. It was never in um, it was never in deep space or you know or all that sort of stuff. It was very sort of just like surreal moments in real life, like yes. almost like a dream yes. narrative. Yeah, and, that, and that's and that's why it has its 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 um its potency because it's not fantasy. It's not goblins dancing with elves. And that was the thing about you know Pink Floyd. It was always a very domestic. Lyrically, yes, it was, yeah, it's a, it wasn't it's, about it wasn't yes, and it wasn't you know uh, Genesis. And so I listened, I listened to the new record before I'd read any of your bio notes that come with it, and you've written your own um, notes around your journey of the last wee while, and you've you touch on some of the things we're talking about now, your journey with the guitar. So I I always like to listen to records without any of the press stuff to begin with, and I put it on, and I was like, oh man. Paul's going deep on a Pink Floyd thing before, yeah. and, and I thought that was fantastic because you know records sometimes reach people at the hopefully at the right time in their life, and I don't know what it was, but something about the lockdown. I started listening to Pink Floyd like I hadn't done in years, and I watched um, more than one unauthorized documentary about Pink Floyd, and the official Pink Floyd YouTube channel was putting up. Uh, concert footage from the archives for free. So every weekend I was getting up and watching that stuff and I just immersed myself in serious Floyd fandom. So I felt pretty well. As soon as I heard what you were doing, I was like, man, he's had his own version of the journey I've just been on and I'm about as well prepped for this as I could possibly be. <laughs> well, that's, that's the word, isn't it? Immersive, you know. The music that I, I mean, I'm not one for... You know, I didn't really get into Weezer and you know, the Beck records I like are like Mutations and Sea Change and stuff. You know, I'm not yeah, the really song into, ones. <laughs> yeah, well, you're not, not, and not sort of, you know, I'm not, I like, I, I like unashamedly epic music. You yeah, know? yeah. I, I like, I like 
to see the horizon. I, I like the well. I actually, don't like to see the horizon. I like the horizon to be beyond the periphery of my vision. When I listen to music, I like the expanse of it. You know, like when you listen to something like Blood of Eden by Peter Gabriel, or yeah. you know, you know, or U two at their very best. Yes, you know, and which is probably around you know Joshua Tree for me. Yeah, um, unforgettable the, 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 fire as well. Really, isn't it? That's kind of the hint yeah. of it. Those two, those yeah. first two records with um, Eno and Lanois. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and obviously, basically what Lanois and Eno are doing, are giving basically you two the aesthetic of the Apollo soundtrack and going, yeah, you guys should do this, and this would be fucking great in the arena. Yes, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's the whole opening to, um, you know, Where the Streets Have Our Name is basically, can we use an ending ascent at the beginning of our record? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you know, that Eno thing is a huge, you know, he's able to, um, at his best, it's when his head and his heart are in complete synergy. When his head's in complete control, it it it's, it feels really sort of academic, and you go, "Oh, that's interesting," but it's not really emotionally engaging. But as best, it um it really taps into that sort of space beyond words, and you know, and I think that's what he wants to do. I, I don't know if you've ever read that book, A Year with Swollen Appendages. I have, I have, yeah, yeah. There's a great line in that book that always stuck with me about when he talks about backing vocals. Yeah. You know, must, you know, note to self, must check out all most, most successful records of all time and check for backing vocals. <laughs> and, and his theory was that, um, that they would necessarily have backing vocals yeah. because that's the way we think. You know, we, we have our talking voice, which is like, you know, the, the lead singer or whatever. And then we have, our, have all our thoughts behind, you know, sort of contextualizing that. Mm. And so mm. we, we, we are... We never, we're never really occupying the world with one voice. We have the one that comes out loud. We have all the internal voices that are contextualizing it. So, mm, yeah. mm. so that this is some of the uh, the deep groundwork that goes into you making a new album. But what what are the more um, you know the 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 Cliff's Notes version of why? First of all, you made a new album, and second of all, you made a new album for the first time in many years under the name Gramsci. Uh, well, I was in Wellington working on the world of wearable art, and I was really inspired by the um, the collaboration of creatives on that. And, and it occurred to me that in a part of my uh, of, of uh, a lot of the conversation we've just been having, say about Pink Floyd and what have you, mm. has has spilled over into. Um, Aesthetics in terms of you know the presentation of it and um, you know the um, the imagery and the, and the contextualization and when you think about Wish You Were Here you think about you know the body diving into the water with no splash and you know the man on fire shaking yeah. hands and all that sort of stuff and um, and it occurred to me like with um, I've been working in theatre for the last sort of you know ten fifteen years. Um, the audience for theatre, they come to see a show. They don't go, you know, you don't go, oh, streetcar names. Oh, yes, I'll go and see that one because I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, when a new play comes up, you don't go, oh, I'm not going to say I haven't read that one, so I'm not going to go and see it. It's like, well, that's ridiculous, you know. And that's, and I think, um, you know, like, and I saw the David Byrne show um, not so long ago too, and then obviously the Roger Waters one too. The presentation of music as a, as 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 part and parcel of the expression of of, of a live event. You know, and the idea of congregation is actually become even more moot. You know, with the pandemic and the lockdown, and, mm. and you know, I never really considered myself being in the business of congregation until I realised that's exactly what I do in in every aspect of of, of my creative life. You know, both purely musically and both um, purely um, 
you know, within the theater collision as well. Um, the not drinking thing, I think with the, the things that I have done, like Paul McClaney acoustic stuff, that's very personal, pers- you know, that's Paul McClaney sitting on stage playing guitar, talking about Paul McClaney's life or what have you. Um, the impending adorations is some sort of, um, again, it's like a personal journey that people wanted to, you know, I knew it wasn't for everybody in the world and it was for people who liked that sort of music and what have you, but because Gramsci, I suppose, was how I sort of entered um, the musical space in terms of um, being known for being a musician or what have you, um, it seemed like all of the things I had been doing were coming full circle. Like, Impending Adorations is purely electronic. Yeah. McClaney is like purely acoustic folk, you know, in that sort of realm, you know, acoustic instruments, strong quartets and what have you. Um, and like Gramsci sort of is, is, to my mind, was always like the melting pot of it all. Like, and I feel like I've sort of like, I, I paused it and then I went off and did some like, like further study. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like I went into, like, it's like going to university, and, you know, say if you were a writer, say if you're going to write American Gods, you're Neil Gaiman, then you'd have to go and spend like a year investigating, you know, uh, Cherokee mating rituals and, and <laughs> yeah. Norse, Norse mythology and Japanese mythology and sort of, and I feel like musically I sort of gone off and sort of dug deep that maybe I wasn't um, as, as much of a music fan as I was and have been all my life, um, there's nothing beats study and um, an exposition within that study. Yeah. And, you know, and I feel, and I feel like um, I was going to say something, probably the most important thing I said emotionally um, uh, ever, <laughs> musically. Mm. Um, and then I was going to take all these... Uh, but bring everything that I love together in music, you know, like, so, you know, like the intros to like ancient history and hitting my stride and inheritance, you know, I have these big sort of ambient wash sort of things that aren't, you know, that, that, that um, are informed by the work that I've done with Impending Adorations and there's acoustic guitar playing in Golden Bar, which is, you know, from that whole world. And then there's all these extra guitar solo things. And then there's the layering of vocals, which was uh, a Gramsci thing. And suddenly I explored, there's a textural thing with the impending adorations there was all so drawing all of your troops together like pulling all of these strengths and going well I'm going to actually sort of I want I feel like that maybe I'm saying something that um, is less esoteric and and is is, that might have um, a greater capacity for empathy and I feel like I'm saying it as as a man and not as a boy yeah 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 I do and that's a really interesting space to be in musically too, because you know so much of the of the music industry um, and the way it travels via media is aimed at you know like you know like TikTok, <laughs> yeah, twelve <laughs> year olds and um, and eighteen year olds. But you know, my theory is if you stay true to your craft, and I feel like I went off for fifteen years and really dug deep in a whole bunch of things, and I'm bringing them back, and and I'm and I'm better prepared and more evolved and more nuanced, you know, I listen back to all stuff and I, and I can hear the mistakes, you know, I feel like um, I had a capacity to oversing 
early on because it felt great, mm-hmm. you know. And I, and I was listening to Jeff Buckley, and, and, and you know, and, and I always had thought, well, the more notes, the, the bigger your range as a singer, the, the more melodies you can write because you've got all these extra notes you can use. But yeah, you know, it's it's learning how to use those um, economically and for the greatest emotional power. Like when you, if you did it, if, if you're on eleven the whole time, it has yes. absolutely no. <laughs> It's like the thing we're talking about volume stuff. He's shredding like for seven minutes, and and there's no power to it. It's like when you see Prince, you know, and Prince will just play emotionally and beautifully, and then he'll shred for like a minute, and let you know that he's capable of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't do it like for the entire song. He's like. But it doesn't serve any musical purpose. Oh, it's like it's like when I went and saw Steve Vai years, you know, as a lapsed fan. Like I grew up loving all that stuff, and I know we've talked about things like Flying in a Blue Dream and stuff before. They to me they're like once a year listen now, but I did my time with them. Um, but I went and saw Vai in the context of that G three uh, show where he was only on stage for something like forty five minutes, and then back at the end for the jam, and it was fucking unbelievable uh, oh, and, and and then I went and saw him a couple of years later when he came back to do the full show that was about and I walked out after about two hours and 20 minutes and he was still going and I thought oh you know there was about half an hour of amazing shit in the middle of that but yeah it was you know it was a real god he's amazing and anyone who just completely writes him off isn't listening and doesn't have the facility for the sorts of things no, he's, he's doing he's a wizard it's, it's yeah. beyond but, it, but it, 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 it's like um, remember that drink thrifty yeah uh, what cordial it's yeah. like drinking that's great <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, and so like with your album, you, you know, it's interesting talking to you now, having listened to it and, and read up about it, and 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 now talking to you because you can see this supreme focus that you've had on on marrying up um, your vocals to do one thing to tell one part of the story, and your guitar to tell another part because the guitar parts in it are very scene-setting. They have all of these things we were just talking about, like David Gilmour's work and Mark Knopfler's, they they bring songs in and they send songs off and they don't get in the way when you're singing. And when you're singing, you know when to stop and when to pull back and and change your voice and let the guitar tell its part of the story. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and, and it's, it's recorded as an album to be a piece, you know, and, and, yeah. and in terms of the, um, the palatability of that sort of 45, 46-minute experience, um, you need a break from each of those those um, characters in the play. You know, it's, yeah. it's pretty intense to go and see a 50-minute play that has one person on stage and you have this one thing. But like when you, um, it, the light and shade and, you know, and, and, and some, some time out, and, and I was thinking about all those Pink Floyd records and what, you know, what is it about them that are so, so why they're so timeless, you know, and, it, and there's such elongated moments of musical, you know, with no voices, you know, like, so, like my, probably my favorite Floyd track, I think, now is, um, well, probably has been since I heard it, but I wasn't man enough to sort of lean into it, and I was, you know, comfortably numb, I was there, but it's dogs. Oh yeah! Now, as you, <laughs> as you were saying, as you were building up, I was just sitting here going, "Please say dogs! Please say dogs! Please say dogs!" Because because that has—I mean, I'll let you say what you want to say about it, but that has everything about a great Pink Floyd track in it, and sort of over and over again, and explored by every angle. Right? It's so long and so big, oh. and they all get to shine. Yeah, 
and it and it has that beautiful English pastoral aspect yes. to it with the, with the acoustics and, and and that drive and um you know and then it has almost like a tribute to Peter Green in that sort of harmony breakdown section which is like you know echoes of albatross and stuff. But after that big, the first time that happens, that big sort of space moment, which is fucking insanely yeah. beautiful. Um, and he, he goes into that first proper Strat solo, and it's quite aggressive. And, he, yes. and you're thinking, this is like 1978 or, you know, 77 around there, and, and it's the peak of, like, you know, punk music in the UK. And that, and you've got, like, you know, you fucked up old hags sort of lyrics, you know, obviously that's in, um, in, in Sheep or whatever it is, but... Um, yeah, yeah. You know, um, the aggression and the mm. attitude in, the, in those guitar solos. And you, so you have this whole... And I think that was the only record that was recorded at Britannia Raw, so it has a real... Um, it's not as um, shiny as the other Pink Yeah, Floyd yeah, yeah, and totally. I'd be good ones and, and, and the bit and the whatever that... Wherever, um, whatever the wall was, was, was recorded in a bunch of places, wasn't it? But, yeah, you know, it yeah. doesn't have that shininess to it. it it's quite sort of... Um, band in a room but well it's I mean it's it's absurd to say what I'm going to say but it is their punk record it comes out in that era and it is their oh, punk yeah. record but it's completely um, an over the top version of punk but it is Pink Floyd's version of a punk record and it's in its anger and it's and it's grittiness and it has a soul of punk to it it's like a prog band does punk well you know there's a, there's a track on um, on the album on the Gramsci album called Like a Scar yeah and it's um that's probably the, the the song that really addresses that sort of um, self-loathing or whatever about drinking. You know, yeah, you, you, yeah. Know, you, you know, don't really want this, but I deserve it. Or you know, it's 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 you know, you know that you're doing damage. Yes. And um, there's a guitar solo at the end of that because that's the only place I could go to musically. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and that's really inspired. For me, by the aggression and in, in the playing that's on um, animals, it doesn't really exist anywhere else in any of the Pink Floyd records. You know, um, maybe a little bit on uh, the final cut, but yeah, yeah, but, but still a bit shiny on there. You know, well, it's, 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 the guitar sounds too nice, doesn't it? Yeah, well, and you know what I was going to say before when you were, when you were t- and you know when when you were talking about David Gilmore the first time around, I was going to say his great moments in Pink Floyd are are basically his attempts to wrestle a bit of control off Roger, aren't they? They're his, they're his moment to shine. and But they're also, because Roger's so controlling within the context of that group, and I imagine as a human being, um, I, I imagine he's one of those quite poisonous characters to be around where you can't help but be influenced by his negative energy. So, you know, as you're talking about dogs, and I'm thinking about how gnarly and grungy and gritty that first solo is how how angry it is you know that mm. those are angry lyrics and i mean that's the tour where everything breaks down and he spits at the fan and he comes up with the yeah. idea to build the wall and all of that sort of thing like it's him at his you know his marriage had broken up i think it's it's him at his worst and that had an impact on the people around him totally you know and you, you can tell he's like one of those guys who's just gaslighting everybody all, yeah all, yeah, all. yeah 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 yeah, and, and and Gilmore's also just released his first solo album too, right? So he's he's sort of like trying to fly. And he's also like, you know, you can tell when you read those interviews that he was um, intimidated by Roger's uh, prolificism. Yes. His, his facility with words and expression. and um, But he knew... He's hands down the best musician in that fucking band. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. And, 
and that he was going to, you know, you can say all that stuff, but I'm going to show you how it really feels. There's a, there's a, there's a great, um, I read those Red Hand Diaries, you know, the um, Nick Cave. Yes, so yeah, yeah. Read that yep. one about his favorite guitar players. Yeah. And Dave Gilmore's right up there, and he talks about how his guitar playing is just like really an extension of of the, of the melodic satin reach of his of, of his vocals. You know, it's like his voice on, on steroids, like supercharged. And, uh, you know, all of those things that... Um, Gilmore, uh, sorry, Roger Waters is specifically rapping poetry and expression and anger and, um, you know, literacy around Gilmore can just play it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and now, at, at a prod, at a prod, you know. Um, and, you know, and so, you know, Gilmore's best solos are in Roger Waters' songs. Yeah, that's right. That's right, and that's that's what I say. That's him trying to. I mean, it's him honouring the work for a start because the, the the best songs have the best solos, arguably. But it's also him trying to get his voice in there, and uh, you know, I guess in a way, a little bit of co-authoring. It's him saying, "Well, this is what I bring to the. You can't you can't do this, and I can." Yeah, exactly. And 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 the, and the balance of those two guys. I mean, I saw that video that Roger Waters put up, which is like the. Who gives a fuck about Pink Floyd website during the <laughs> Yeah, fucking- yeah, I watched that too. I, I, I love what you're about, and like, I love that last record and yeah. that tour that I saw, that you, The Wall, and then the um, Us and Them tour, like, you know, easily some of the best things, you know, that and the David Byrne shows, like, it just shows me what arena rock is, is capable of in, in yeah. terms of that art. You know, that whole art rock thing, you know, with Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel and David Byrne, and, you know, it, 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 it it's a. Uh, it's a rarefied space of music because, you know, some people do that theatrical stuff in the theatres. But, you know, most New Zealand bands you go and see and, you know, and you're lucky if the if the lighting guy is hitting the space <laughs> yeah. bar there, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and so that, that, that sort of, um, that collision of, um, of how art, theatre and, and rock music can collide is very powerful when it's done, when it's done very well. Obviously, Nine Inch Nails do it phenomenally and, and, um, you know, Pink Floyd at the Vanguard, you know, they're sort of anonymous. That's the other thing I've got, I'm really into is this idea of um, the artist being anonymous in the art. Yes, yeah. You know, you know, you don't have to like the painters, like the painting. And, and you know, the thing about Floyd was that they were always, um, it wasn't really about what haircut any of them had or, you know, there were sort of like these sort of, shadows or little silhouettes on stage while the, the show was happening around. Yes, they had they had no image and they weren't trying to have an image other than other than taking themselves seriously and some sometimes you'd say a little too seriously. But beyond that they didn't really have an image as such. The image was projected onto them quite literally. Then I think about, you know, the ambition of um Sir Joel Mahon who's um playing guitar in the band live. Um, yeah. You know, we have a shared admiration of early days straight, you know big on it and um, we were talking about alchemy and, and you think you know to go from like playing in Deptford <laughs> and playing Songs of Swing and, and, and what have you to playing like you know Love of Gold sort of like their prog album isn't it yeah. you've got like Telegraph Road which is like 17 minutes and Private Investigation which is another nine and a half minutes to take an audience from 1978 to 1983 where you've got them sending the Hammersmith audience listening to a 17 minute Prog epic about you know <laughs> yeah 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 and 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 they're all going there you know and it's a rowdy crowd but they're they're really on that trip you know and and it's the music that's doing the heavy lifting it's not the um 
it's not the dance moves and the and the and you know and the cult of personality around Nofflo. I mean, he suppose he has that blue color, blue collar sort of Springsteen thing, but Springsteen's far more of a showman. Yeah, yeah. Well, Nofflo's just particularly good on the guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I sort of in my weirder moments think that one day, I mean, I know he's respected, but one day people are actually going to realise the the sheer amount of brilliant stuff that Mark Knopfler's had a hand in, how far it extends beyond the Knopfler Dire Straits brand and how he's done oh, some yeah. really yeah. weird thing. I mean, he's kind of Brian Eno-esque in that regard. I mean, he's not a he's not a conceptualist in the way. He's like the musician version of Eno. Eno's the non-musician and proud of it, and Knopfler's very proud of being the musician version. But he finds, the, he finds the, the emotion and the expression of playing the instrument. I mean, he did a, a soundtrack for a, a, like a film not so long ago about uh, the cave paintings. Yeah. Antonio then that's, an, that's a beautiful album of music, you know, up there with his, you know, cow yeah. and local Yeah, with the, with the early soundtracks, which are still wonderful. Yeah, you know, it's... it's um, you know, the, the problem is that when people hear Dire Straits, they think... Well, yeah, I was gonna, and I was going to say, when they hear Dire Straits, they see, they see sweatbands. Yeah, that's, that's, actually what, that's actually what the problem is. The problem, you know, when I, when I think of Dire Straits, I think of, like, the first record and In the Gallery and Live. Yeah, and yeah. And it's fucking amazing. Yeah, and the second record, you know, News and Lady yeah. Writer. And the, the second record I sometimes think is better than the first. And then I go back and play the first again and I go, this is better than the second. But th- what an extraordinary <laughs> couple of records. And then you get to the third record, which isn't as good, but things like Tunnel That's of Love cool, yeah. are maybe better than anything on the other two records. Yeah, it's... Yeah, Tunnel of Love and Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. They're just an arguable sort of... Um, yes, Perfect piece, you know, and, and and it has that American thing because of Roy Bitten and obviously Jimmy Iovine, and but there's a great, I mean, on that Alchemy uh, Blu-ray, there's a great documentary, Arena documentary, and it's yep. it's I don't know if you watched that. I have, yeah, 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 and they're, and they're rehearsing for um the writing sessions for Making Moves with David Knopfler still there, and and all the rehearsals just sound like it's like business as usual, going to make another sort of you know Southbound again, setting me up type of yeah, yeah. Girl type thing, and then obviously you know, shit goes south with his brother, and and obviously within about three months he's written Tunnel of Love, Romeo and Juliet, Skate Away, yeah, Espresso you know, Love, an, an, an insane bit of um, songwriting, yeah, going on. And he's yeah. playing all the guitars on that record. I think he played quite a lot of guitars on those first records, to be honest. I think so too. I know that's a source of frustration for for both of them. And I left when I interviewed Mark Knopfler a few years ago. I left oh, my wow. I left my question about his brother to the end, which was silly, but it, it was sensible because I kind of th- knew it was going to botch the interview. And then when yeah. I asked him at the very end, he said, "I've already given you five extra minutes. Like we'll just wrap things up here," and um, and just didn't answer yeah. it, which is obviously very <laughs> telling, but 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 brilliant. <laughs> Totally off topic, eh? Like, you never, there's never been any. Uh, and then you know when they got in, in the Hall of Fame, neither of them turned up, and yeah. they've not had a big thing about how he, they wouldn't pay for his ticket and blah 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 blah. Um, which is strange, you know. But you know, you watch that. You, you watch um like there's I've got that '78 Rock Palace concert. Yeah, um, yeah, I've watched that. Yeah. And um, you watch him playing like Single Handed Sailor or um in the gallery like. You can't really hear with David Knopfler. Like, Knopfler. Mark Knopfler's just covering all of that shit. Yes. He's just 
effortlessly jumping from rhythm to lead to, and he's got so much groove and he's like a white Geordie Hendrix. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. He's in full command of the the harmony and rhythm of all of those songs at the same time. And so uh, in the pocket, and then yeah. you know, obviously, right then he's after that he's straight into Dylan and um, Stevie <laughs> Dan and yeah, as Tech Camera playing with yeah, Scott well, playing with Scott Walker. It's so many, you know, and and, and um, yeah, because there aren't that many good, there aren't that many musicians really out on the planet where you instantly hear them and you go, oh, that's you know, Jack yeah, or that's yeah. John Bonham or that's um, you know, uh, Pino Palladino or whatever it is. You know, it's, it's a pretty, you know, I don't know how many guitars are on the planet, but you know, those guys could pick up any of them and sound like themselves. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So tell tell me about um, the um, the drummer that you're working with. Greg Haber. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Greg is um, a Welsh producer. I mean, he's a drummer, first and yeah. foremost. So he, that, that's how he came through. But um, he's obviously, uh, he sort of came to notoriety uh, working with um, as a producer for um, Manny Street Preachers, first and foremost, mm. and then uh, Catatonia. And he's, you know, he's been a jobbing producer for many years. He's, he's done Mel C and, and, and this and the other. But, you know, his... When we were we were in rehearsals today, and he was talking about you know his first gig was seeing Led Zeppelin with um, Todd Rudgren's Utopia, <laughs> wow, <laughs> um, at, at Nebworth, you know, in 1978, and and you know his uh, personal record collection is you know he could talk you know, he could talk the ass of a donkey in terms of um, early Genesis, right? You know, basically all the way up to like the Wind and Wuthering, and that's when he sort of dropped out. As soon as Steve Hackett left, he wasn't interested anymore. Wow. Um, and you know, and he's he has a, a band, uh, something something you know. I can't remember the name of the band, so it's something in Moscow, and and they're um they've recently reformed, and and they and they exist in that sort of English. You know how that in England the prog thing never really went away. They've yeah. always had like Marillion and Gong and uh, yeah, 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 Giants, and you know you read all those classic rock magazines, and that whole prog scene has been alive. You know, it's, it's not no been no one told them it was finished and over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, and they, and they've kept on going, on, but they've they've stayed true to what the, the sort of premise of prog music is. Like, if you think of Jethro Tull, you know, the, the first prog album really is Stand Up because it moves beyond. It's trying to ex, ex, explore or expand upon the blues form. You know, yeah. it's taking in moments of of, um, of jazz, classical, uh, that sort of thing. So, so, so Greg. Um, he, the, how it came about was that I had gotten 70, 80% in the way of making it all, and I and I wasn't too sure if I needed a producer to help me finish it, you know, just to get mm. some objectivity on it. And so I contacted Greg, and I played him the um, what we had, and, and, and we met up, and he said, um, I don't think you need a producer, but you really need a drummer. Can I, can I play the drums? And, um, you know... He said, um, "This is exactly the sort of music that I want to be making. I want to be in a band, and you know, and, and I've spent, you know, it's something. It's been an itch that he'd um, not been able to, um, you know, scratch or whatever." Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. One of those, one of those perfect kind of uh, synergies. Yeah, and our, and, our, and our musical reference. You know, we we can talk about Mike Hedges' drumming. Uh, <laughs> Uh, sort of mic t- set up for 17 seconds, you know. Yeah, yeah. He's a music like I am in, and like you are. And you can, you can talk about, you know, what chorus pedal was used. Uh, we'll, have, and... we'll have to all get together and not have a beer together at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, it, so, it, it, that sort of 
deep understand you know mm. one minute we're talking about you know Andy Summers and Stuart Copeland and the next minute we're talking about you know uh, Trick of the Tail and um, Dance on the Volcano by Genesis and the next yeah. thing you're talking about you know B-sides to many Street Preachers records and then you know the opening track on the, the uh, Mind Bomb you know his, 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 his musical language is we, we, we can talk for yeah, hours yeah dovetails nicely oh, oh. So he, he, I think he knows where I'm coming from in terms of pulling together all the different threads of my, of my personal inspirations and trying to. Um, I like sophisticated music. I don't like it sophisticated where it's. Um, you know, I like David Sylvian, but you know, I know that's mm. not for everybody. And I love, you know, the big records for me are obviously like um, Spirit of Eden and uh, you know Laughingstock and that sort of stuff and and you know, but from. Things like um, Chris Whitley's first record and oh, yeah. and uh, and you know Peter Gabriel around So and Us and that sort of elements of of world music without and you know well Rod, uh, Robert Plant's career um, from about um, Mighty Rearranger on you know I think that guy has just plugged into you know you know the the, 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 the difference between him and Jimmy Page now couldn't be more stark yeah yeah yeah. Uh, you know, he's, he's, his, his musicology, his expression, his, his um, infiltration and application of, 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 of other... Well, it's very simple. One of them stopped listening to Led Zeppelin and one of them's never stopped listening to Led Zeppelin. I really think it's, that, it's probably that simple with them. Well, uh, in that, Mick, Mick Wall has a book, Standing yeah. on the Shoulders of Spice, uh, and he has that whole chapter dedicated to the, um, the King Midas curse. Yeah. How Kenneth Angus meant to put the King Midas curse on Jimmy Page so that, you know, he, <laughs> yeah. he, he can recognize greatness, but he's no longer capable of generating it. Yeah, and yeah. And every time you read an interview with Jimmy Page, you always talk about, um, I've been working on the new album, we've been working on the new album. So we've been working on that new album for about 11 years. <laughs> yeah, well, last year he put out, last year he produced a record of poetry for his girlfriend. She's a poet and a published poet, and she's, um, you know, English girl that's younger than his children and um, she's put out a couple of books and then she put out a record and Jimmy Page produced it and made some annoying I don't think there's any guitars on it but he made some annoying soundscapes and well, he, put out, he, put out, he put out something recently sorry you go oh I was just going to say it's like what the fuck are you doing mate like, like no one like good on you like by all means do this but also no one wants to hear you involved with this so do something else as well please I mean I, I, mean, I listen to um he put something up on Instagram or something, and it was like a new, and it was fucking. It sounded like someone plugging in the guitar and making sure it was in tune. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so what? You know, and this, is, this is a guy that plays on Stormcock, you know, which is yeah. another one of my amazing. But oh yeah, but my point is, I, I love that sophistication in music, and it's not something I hear a lot of. I, I really like um, the first track on the new Mermaidens record, um, "Crying in the Office." You know that. That to me has like um, elements of, 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 of um, it's it's coming from that uh, desire to be to create something sophisticated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally, totally. Yeah. Hey, so and what? I've heard more bits and pieces of that more and more, and that's the sort of you know when we, uh, your your word immersive. That's the music I, I want. Mm. You know, music to me is somewhere I used to escape to, and, and you can go and live, and it's a. It's it's a it's a steadfast geography. Yeah, you know, for someone who moved around a lot when they were a kid and went to different schools and stuff, you know, I could always put on the headphones and listen to heavy voices, and it was always going to be the same place. Yeah, yeah, that was your home. Now, t- tell me what um, 
are you going to do with all this? Because people are going to listen to this right. I mean, they're going to wade through a lot of discussion about Pink Floyd and Mark Knopfler, which I've, I have loved, and I know you have. But but um, what? Well, they're going to hear this right around the time that the record comes out. Um, and so the record comes out, the album comes out, and you're rehearsing. What 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 is the plan? Because obviously the the world is different. The plan is um is is a uh, is um fairly ambitious live shows um, starting um, here in Auckland at the end of August um, and these are like you know uh, as I said from the very beginning of making this record and writing it in September last year um, it has been in my mind a facet of the actual ambition which is the presentation of it as a live performance like to go and see one of those shows where you are immersed in the music and so there's a there's a whole bunch of AV content that's been developed over the last year, um, and that's all. And you know, actually, lockdown was was. I think it was the first time in ten years where I've been able to give something of my own, hundred percent, hundred percent, you know, of, of my attention. Yeah, yeah. To, to drill deeper and deeper and deeper and go as far as I could with it. And so we have. Um, so we've been in rehearsals. Um, it to answer your question, it, it, the whole next 12 months is um the live presentation of this to this within the scale that i that i feel that it should be presented this yeah. music you know it's not it's not small music sitting in a cafe somewhere it's it's an immersive event we're working towards an outdoor concert as well that um oh, i suppose i can talk about it it's um working uh with projector spaces into the canopy of Forest. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I was gonna, so, you know, I was going to say I don't imagine a quick follow-up record to this. No, I mean the, uh, there is um about 20 or 30 new songs that mm. occurred throughout the process of doing this and they're all um drilling further and deeper into it and I, and I think the next thing that we do do as a band will um definitely lean more into that sort of um like a cross between uh Animals and Omadon, that, that sort of pastoral problem. Yeah, yeah. See, Omadon's the only um, Mike Oldfield record I care about these days. It's the only one I can. <laughs> it's the only one I can feel comfortable in myself admitting that I like. Anything else <laughs> is guilty pleasure only. But Omadon, well, I think, is just mind blowing. I think there's something pagan about that mm. pastoral English thing, and, I, and I'm really into that. Um, so. But I think, you know, for me, Gransky is now, without without a shade of a doubt, is the, the complete uh, cradle of all of my musical uh, intent from yeah. here on in. Yeah, so and, pause, and you, wanted to, you wanted to bring that name back too because, I mean, that's how a lot of people know you, right? Like, even when, mm. you, even when you're performing as Paul McClaney, you get introduced or mentioned as yeah. that guy from Gramsci or that guy who was Gramsci. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and even the, you know the um, the motivation for having that name in the first place as a band is the idea of you know um, you know counter hegemonic strategy or if you want to yeah. call it where you know just to, to get involved in the thing and change it rather than try and say I don't like it and dismiss it. You know, it, 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 in a sort of self-fulfilling sort of prophecy way, it has become my Trojan horse mm, mm. that I can 
I can drive that into the middle of the um of the of the of the of the town square and have the most impact with that and so I'm going to use it. And um I feel like um I haven't heard the music that's inspired me uh come my way for a while. You know, the music I want to hear is not being made by people so I'm sort of you know, taking up that challenge. You, you, you're that. going out and doing it. Yeah, you know, yeah. and um, I want to hear that. You know, I want to hear epic, cinematic rock music that isn't about riffs and uh, blues-based tropes. It's 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 about you know the horizon or yearning or um, self-actualization or all those big things. Yeah. And I don't think there's any shame. You know, I, I spent some time sort of hiding aspects of my musicality and I just you know I don't see I don't see the point you know we were going to talk about um, Aaron Tokina and I know it's just going to get you to that I was going to say we, we were going to talk about Aaron at the start but you hit me in that sweet spot by getting straight into Pink Floyd um, <laughs> I feel like we should start to wrap things up um, I do want to you know let you finish what you want to say about the album but yeah let's move to talking about Aaron as well but you know we talk about inheritance, you know, and one of the things I've been considering in, in, in the aftermath of uh, Aaron's passing is um, this idea of legacy. Yeah. And that, you know, uh, you know, well, personal wealth accumulation or whatever you want to call it is the legacy of that is so discreet to immediate family and, and to, you know, uh, but um, artistic legacy is like, is, is the available and is it, available as an inheritance to the world. And my time with um, Aaron and the, his energy that rubbed off on me was to be totally unashamedly and utterly yourself, you know, and to have absolute um, confidence and pride in that. You know, my uh, regret around a lot of... There's a song on that record called Icarus, and I wrote... Yeah. When I was writing that, that that's sort of the moment emotionally about, um, you know, you can see that 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 myth has two different angles, and that's a big part of the album is the is the archetype of myth and how we attach ourselves to you know Narcissus or Icarus or Tantalus or Achilles or Atlas or whatever it is, you know. Well, that's a bit like that, and you 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 attach yourself to that. But the thing about Icarus is that. Um, ambition and overarching ambition and failure but the story about Icarus is not really about failure it's about that sort of um, uh, the bravery of it yeah you know, you know and that's and you know you could say that about Aaron you know um, so when I I was really looking forward to playing that you know to him because um for me, he was like, you know, he's like the New Zealand Hendrix Santana sort of yes. thing. And, and for me, um, anything that approaches that sort of um, expression on the guitar is traveling down a highway that he's he's carved out. And um, so when I was when, when we played it today, you know, I, I can't not play it now and not think of, of him and, mm. and, and him giving me the confidence um, through his example. Yes, because he was someone who guitar solo. When you were talking about guitar solos going out of vogue, he was someone that I think he understood that they were both never in vogue and always in vogue. 
And so that's just yeah, how he yeah, that's just how he kind of flew the flag with it. It was like I'm going to do it because it feels good, and I that's what I was raised on and what I am into. And he was a little bit embarrassed about it too, because you know, like, you, um, you know, we both came up we're exactly the same age, pretty much. You know, yeah. and, um, and so you know, it was all Sonic Youth and Husker uh, Do, and you know, and and sort of anti guitar solo and noise, yeah. and you know, but you know, but we all grew up listening to all the people we've been talking about and and this and, and the expression and, and, and there's I mean there's footage of him playing at um with Car Knife Fight at York Street Studio Sunday session or something doing a song called The Violence of Action. Yeah. And, uh, the first sort of like two minutes of that it was just like this guitar thing and it and it it's such an extension of his and it's 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 emotional and I and I think just watching him do it, you know, and watching the reaction of people see him do it, you say, well, you know, this is connecting. Like all the people that say this, this stuff is dead or it doesn't travel or, or, or we're all into computers now or whatever, like just stand somebody in front of Aaron Cochran playing the guitar or Jeff yeah. Paul playing the guitar yeah. or, you know, and, and, and or Paul Obama Jones playing the guitar. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's undeniable. You know, that instrument has, has a facility and it has a cultural legacy that we um that that we we still you know uh, swimming through. Yeah, yeah. It's and, and you know I think one of the things that has been very heartening uh, in the news of Aaron's passing and the aftermath of it, and, and we're only a week into that, um, is is you know uh, just seeing how much people care. Like you 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 hope they do. You, you figure they would, but the outpouring has been, I think, very genuine. And, I mean, he was a guy who uh, connected with a lot of people. And so, I mean, I didn't know him hugely well. I wrote what I wrote about him because I did know him and I did enjoy a lot of his music. But when I interacted with him, I almost feel like he made it seem like we knew each other better than we did. But I don't think he did that out of any falseness. I think he did that out of an appreciation of where I was coming from with regard to the fact he knew I loved music and he did. Yeah, no, you know, and, and he was, he was just the same, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, people have said it more eloquently and, um, and as you know, I think we can never know who really knew him the best, you know, mm. obviously his family, um, but, you know, his, he was nothing... In every interaction I ever had with him, he was nothing but um, encouraging, thoughtful, uh, appreciative, listening. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, you know, we I did that. I produced a session for a song of his called "Into the Sunshine." And, yeah. You know, and um, he made everyone take a guitar solo. <laughs> you know, you know, he's a guy that can play everybody under the table, and you know. And then he just comped together the best solo from everyone. You know, it was like Ben Fulton and Lawton and you know John yeah. Mulholland. Yeah. And, you know, and um, and they all played the same guitar through the same amp. And and so I think most of the solos him actually, to be honest. But um, but it was it was just another sort of expression of his humility. Yeah, he wanted that idea of a shared blood going through it. Yeah, no, he's amazing. Yeah. And um, yes, it's. I mean, it's as I say, it's been it's been lovely hearing people's stories and and just noticing that people care. Um, but also, I think like, and you know, we've been talking a little bit about this with regards to changes we've we've both made. 
And you hear stories like that and you can't help at our age but worry about your own mortality a little bit too, right? You be, be reminded of it. Oh, without doubt, I went to bed that night thinking, wow, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night with heart problems, you know, my heart yeah. was racing, yeah. you know. And, um, and that's the thing, you know, this album's about inheritance. It's, it's about personal mythologies. Um, and mythologies are... are the, it's the stories around your life that, that are told in the way that you want them to, you know, tell your idea of yourself. And, you know, there's, there's, sometimes there's an absence of truth in those, in those mythologies. And then, you know, we have a cultural mythology around, you know, as I, as I mentioned, these archetypes and stuff. And um, do you want the legend to be true or do you want the truth to be true? And 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 um, I feel like um, with the time that's left to me, I don't want to um, not express myself because of somebody else's, you know, rules about what I can and can't do. And, and I want to be totally truthful about who I am, not um, some version of myself. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that feels like a pretty good place to, to leave it. <laughs> Is there anything that you want to mention or put no. across beyond that? That I'm not advocating anybody should listen to Dead Brothers in Arms. <laughs> <laughs> hey, apart from the title track. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, Paul, it's always a pleasure. We must catch up in person at some point. I'll definitely be at one of your shows. Um, and uh, congratulations on making, uh, I think, the album of your life so far. Well, thank you very much, man. That really means, really means a lot. And, um, and congratulations to you on, um, on, on your poetry. Um, you're getting such a great response. And, um, yeah, it's, we're all doing the things that we're meant to be doing. Sometimes it takes us a bit long to get there, doesn't it? Yeah, well, <laughs> I was thinking about that when you were talking about some of this stuff. And I was thinking, you know, if I'd released a book of poetry and I wanted to the first time around... I would have had to have apologised for it non-stop and justified it, and now I'm just going to put it out in the world. And I don't—I'm really when I say I don't give a fuck, I'm really excited, but I don't give a fuck to explain it to people that don't want to know about it. They don't have to. But yeah, thank you. It has been a good response. The fact that it's going to happen, it's going to come out is cool, and I'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, man. Awesome. Okay, cool, man. Take care.